Hey there, kaiju lovers. You might be thinking to yourself, hey, this isn't episode 50, and you'd be right. Your next question might be, what the heck is going on? Well, it's very simple. Episode 50 has proven to be much more time-consuming to make than I was anticipating. But I assure you, it is coming. It just won't be out for another week. But I swear, the rest of the schedule is not going to get mucked up. And, including this little bonus episode, you're going to be getting content from me three Wednesdays in a row. So there is a bright side to this. That being said, what you are about to hear was a bonus episode that I put onto Patreon and I was going to release on the regular podcast feed, but instead that ended up going to the Monster Island Gatekeepers little episode that Michael and Danny did for me. Now, a little bit of context. What you're about to hear is not in continuity with the show. It was something that I did two years ago as a class project in grad school. I had to research a topic related to media because I was taking a writing for media class. So I decided to work on copyright because I knew I was going to be talking about copyright in an upcoming episode of the podcast, specifically the episode with John LeMay on King Kong Lives. So what you're about to hear is me using a creative method to share all of that research, and it involves Nate and Jimmy interviewing King Kong. So admittedly, the information you're about to hear gets repeated in another episode, but the format obviously is very different. And I think there's some good jokes in here, to be honest. Think of it as something of a lost episode. So without further ado, give your ears a gander at this. You're right, Jimmy. I've been working on Monster Island for a year, and I've never seen King Kong this depressed. Ever. Do you think it's because his rematch with Godzilla was delayed eight months? You have a way we could find out? How? You fixed the Orca device so we can communicate with Kong? Well, you can take the engineer out of NASA, but you can't take the NASA out of the engineer. Yeah, I know, it sounds kind of silly now that I think about it, but let's fire up the orca and get to the bottom of this. Hey Kong, I know you prefer blonde women, but maybe you could talk to this blonde guy for a few minutes. Well, I noticed you seem... sad, so I thought I'd ask what's got you down. Now the bride run away? It's... your copyright? I can understand. Your copyright status is... complicated. I mean, U.S. copyright law is nutty to begin with. It was added to the U.S. Constitution in 1790 with the intention, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective works and discoveries. Authors were granted exclusive rights to publish and sell, quote, maps, charts, and books, for 14 years, with the option to renew them for another 14 years if they were still alive. The law was revised several times after that, most notably in 1831, 1909, 1976, and 1998. Each time, the length of the copyright got longer, eventually getting to 70 years plus the lifetime of the author. I'm getting to how this involves you. 
When Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoedsack were working on your first film in the early 1930s, they commissioned Cooper's writer friend Delos W. Lovelace to pen a novelization of it. It was published in 1932, a year before your film was released. At that time, as per the Copyright Act of 1909, copyrights lasted 28 years with the option for a 28-year renewal. However... For the next few decades, both Cooper and special effects master Willis O'Brien, who did the stop motion animation in your film, tried to get more movies about you made because they honestly thought they owned your copyright. Meanwhile, RKO, the studio that made your first two films, licensed you to Toho Studios in Japan for five years, which led to your first battle with Godzilla. Yes, and your fight with Mechanicong, but... Toho's Kong films horrified both Cooper and O'Brien. But it was the 1970s when things got crazy. Cooper died in 1973, so Archeo probably figured the no-remake rule could be relaxed. Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis approached them to remake your 1933 film for Paramount Pictures. However, Universal started negotiations with Archeo around the same time. Thanks to some studio politics and a misunderstanding over a so-called verbal agreement, Universal started production on a remake while De Laurentiis' offer was accepted. Universal sued for $25 million in damages in June 1975, accusing RKO of, quote, breach of contract and fraud, and De Laurentiis of, quote, international interference with advantageous business relations and unfair competition. De Laurentiis was surprised by Universal's claim, but thought it was invalid because he had a signed contract, so he pressed on with production. While their claim was denied, Universal found their ace in the hole. The copyright for the novelization expired in 1960, 28 years, remember, so it was in the public domain. They announced their new film would be based on the novelization, which was different enough from the original film that it wouldn't infringe on RKO's copyright. But RKO filed a countersuit against Universal in federal district court for $5 million for copyright infringement and asked for an injunction for the studio to stop promoting their film. De Laurentiis filed his own suit later for $90 million in damages caused by, quote, copyright infringement and unfair competition. He also filed an injunction against Universal. Into the middle of all this stepped Marion C. Cooper's son, Richard, who wanted to maintain the rights he thought his father owned. Yeah, it was a massive monkey mess. De Laurentiis and Universal were in a race to see who could start production on their film first, knowing that whoever did would win since the market could realistically only support one film starring you. Universal allegedly approached De Laurentiis about settling after he announced when he'd begin filming. They discussed a joint production, but De Laurentiis didn't like Universal's demands. They wanted their script to be used and merchandising and sequel rights. Finally, Paramount threatened to pull out if he didn't settle, so De Laurentiis started talking with Universal. But after untangling the claims and counterclaims, the judge ruled that all rights to the name, character, and story of King Kong, other than those of RKO's films, belonged to the Cooper estate, and that all profits they earned from it were to be awarded to Richard Cooper. Richard Cooper later sold some of his rights to Universal while retaining the worldwide publishing rights to the character and story that were not in public domain. In other words... 
the rights are split up between RKO, which was bought by Warner Brothers, Dino De Laurentiis, Universal, and the Cooper Estate, while some parts are in public domain. Hence why there's been a lot of unlicensed Kong material over the years. Which brings me to the next crazy chapter in this saga, Donkey Kong. Uh, why did I say that name? I didn't realize this was such a sore spot with you. The puny ape stole your name? Uh, not really. Game designer Shigeru Miyamoto was certainly inspired by you. In fact, early builds of the game called the ape in it King Kong as a placeholder before settling on the name Donkey Kong. The story of the game is similar. An ape kidnaps a young woman, climbs a tower, and the player character Jumpman, aka Super Mario, has to rescue her. Nintendo released the game to arcades in 1981, and it was a huge hit, selling 60,000 units and earning $180 million. Nintendo was already cutting deals to port the game to several platforms when Universal got wind of it and, you guessed it, started suing everyone. They bullied Coleco and Tiger Electronics into paying them damages, but Nintendo didn't budge. Universal insisted that they owned the rights to King Kong and that gamers would get King Kong and Donkey Kong mixed up. During the litigation, the judge realized that in their previous lawsuits, Universal had argued that no one owned the intellectual property rights to King Kong, yet now they were claiming to own them. As Timothy Geigner put it, with one hand, they were hitting Nintendo over the head with the IP hammer while holding a shield against another IP hammer with the other. Once again, their lawsuit was thrown out instantly. Since then, there's been some more litigation related to other media about you, so it remains this weird gray area since... Uh, Kong? Are... Are you crying? But... Why? Because thanks to this confusing copyright, you belong to everyone and no one. Oh, big guy. I... I had no idea. I'm sorry. Yeah, the other monsters do know whose they are. It's like being a kid whose parents got divorced, but they keep fighting over who has custody of you. No wonder you're depressed. But you know what, Eighth Wonder? It doesn't matter, because you are in one of the greatest movies ever made, and your fans love you. Including me, and Jimmy, right? Uh, see? Let the studios fight over who owns you. You have fans who create their own films and stories because they saw you climb the Empire State Building holding a screaming Fey Ray when they were kids. Cinema wouldn't exist without you. You're King freaking Kong. You transcend all this BS. Ugh. Good thing I put earplugs in before coming to the recording studio today. How about you, Jimmy? Your ears are ringing? <sighs> Not again.